Hello, everybody. This is another episode from Saga Media. I am your host, Jeremy Bruce, and we are in our fourth episode of the mystery, Unsolved Mysteries and Cold Cases of the Appalachian Trail. Um, just to give you some background, uh, the Appalachian Trail is a popular hiking trail that spans 2,220 miles, and it was completed in 1937. The trail starts in Springer Mountain, Georgia, trailhead, and ends in Maine. The trail has over 3 million visitors a year, and 20,000 hikers have allegedly com- completed the hike all the way through. States that this trail runs through goes from Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, through Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. It is a gorgeous um, hiking trail. It has many mystic views, mountains, very cool campsites, very cool restaurants, places to see, small towns. So um, this episode is not anything, and, and these episodes are not anything to deter anybody, scare anybody from ever experiencing the Appalachian Trail as Stated earlier that three million visitors are there per year, probably more at this point. Um, but we would like to just spotlight these because, as someone who very much uh, enjoys hiking and in the outdoors and camping and whatnot as much as I can, I do believe that you know in these uh, episodes that we're we're putting together, we 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 want to spotlight this, give some clues, uh, try to try to tell the story again, retell the story, and and. We will be putting a, a follow-up on our podcast. Uh, we are on YouTube, Saga Media on YouTube. We are also on Apple Podcast and Spotify, which is where you'll hear these episodes. So if you can go on our YouTube channel, give us a like, subscribe, and follow, uh, you'll see the follow-up in studio where we kind of spotlight and get into real detail about every one of these cases. Um, we believe that if anything we could do uh, with these stories that we tell, and then we do have plans for follow-up, um, investigative reporting of our own. If any kind of clues or any kind of new new leads or whatnot come from ours, we would be absolutely um, grateful just because we believe in our hearts that the families do need closure and these perpetrators to these heinous crimes should be brought to justice. So uh, today's episode is our fourth episode and we actually go back to 1996 about the double murder in Shenandoah National Park which is in Virginia, beautiful park. Um, unfortunately, it sheds a black eye here on the park because of the murder of Jolie and Jolie Williams and Laura Lolly Winnes. Um, this, these two were uh, set to go on a on a quick, uh, you know, weekend, few day uh, hiking trip, camping trip back in late May of 1996. It was a Sunday, May 19th, uh, 1996, that Jolie Williams and Lowly Winnes embarked on a backpacking trip in the Shenandoah National Park with their Golden Retriever. Jolie was 24 of St. Cloud, Minnesota, and Lowly 26 of Unity, Maine. And they pitched her tent just off of the Shenandoah National Park's horse trails, which you would think the horse trails are, you know, potentially heavily uh, trafficked, you know. Um, you know, a lot of the research that I've done is 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 they've also were just you know a few half a mile and whatnot where they were staying from popular restaurants, bars um, that were in the area. So it makes sense to where they are hiking because hiking and camping because they can do hikes, have their campsite there, go down, mingle with the locals, and just this was right around right after uh, right around and after around the Memorial Day weekend. So a lot of people would be there. These mountain towns, these hiking trails, I mean, generally are pretty desolate and, and, you know, 
after Labor Day up until Memorial Day, but Memorial Day up until Labor Day in the summer months, I mean, they get a lot of visitors, and this is generally when these towns and these areas make, you know, a lot of their money. So to give you the background on these two, the women had met nearly two years prior at a at Woodsman Woods Woman, a not now defunct nonprofit organization in Minnesota focusing on education and adventure travel for women. Sounded like a, a wonderful organization there. Um, the two of them also, because of that, you know, affiliation, they both had a a, a vast uh, in in love love for the the outdoors, hiking, uh, and everything in between. According to jur- journalist Barry Yeoman, in a story for Out, Loli was a considered a micro-brew drinking, fish-following, cigarette-smoking, good-time girl. She was from a well-to-do family in Michigan, but rejected the privilege uh, of her birth. She left home after high school and enrolled in college in Vermont. Though she eventually dropped out, and a few years later, in 1994, she enrolled in Unity College near Waterville, Maine. And began began studying and becoming a wilderness guide. Hence, you know the appreciation and love and, and the passion for for being out in the outdoors. And by all accounts, from our research, Loli, and what we've read up from family and, and stories about her over the years, by all accounts, uh, Loli loved the outdoors and wanted to give others experience in finding themselves in the outdoor as she had. Hence, where her background is and where she had uh, seen her her future. Jolie was a geologist in the making, a high achiever and sports enthusiast who won the Minnesota State Doubles Tennis Championship in high school and even traveled to Europe in college to study the extinction of dinosaurs, which makes sense with geology. Uh, I love geology. I have to do it for some of my work over the years, so it's an appreciation I have. Um, the two of them um, actually were plan- had planned the trip uh, to Shenandoah because they were, cel- they were in celebration of a new job that was set to start in Lake Champlain, Vermont, on June 1st, 1996. Unfortunately, on May 31st, 1996, Thomas Williams, Jolie's father, after not hearing from her, reported his daughter missing. Park Rangers then started a search and located Jolie and Lolly's car just north of Skyland Lodge. Um, they had sta- they'd stated that they started doing hasty searches to cover all the trails corridors in the general area and to see what uh, if they could locate them at that point they were probably thinking okay we're lo- they're lost they might be lost in the woods a lot of these times they do find lost hikers um, these woods are very vast um, you can get lost if you lose you know sundown you make a wrong turn some of these trails aren't marked though even up till today and in present day they really have done a good job with marking and mapping and with apps, but 1996, you know, a lot of that stuff wasn't available. You didn't have apps. You had to use maps and, you know, tree markers weren't probably as common as they are, at least as uh, detailed where there's so many markers. Um, I remember hiking, you know, just 10, 20 years ago, and there are areas that I've rehiked since then that you see a lot of markings now, even on some of the side trails and whatnot. So it really helps. And that's helps not getting lost but at that point they were probably on a search thinking a search and rescue you start to get discombobulated if you don't drink enough water you're hungry but i don't know that they forsake uh and foresaw um i should say uh what they would come upon so the three the two of them were out and they did have their uh their 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 dog uh which was a golden retriever and as they were searching uh the golden retriever was wandering through the park unleashed so obviously at that point you know there might have been some fear, some bad feelings. And then so the next evening on June 1st, 1996, Rangers 
did uh, come upon the discovery of the bodies of Julie and Loli at their campsite on Bridal Trail, which was a part of the horse trail system that runs through Big Meadows to Skyland, unfortunately. Um, the wooded campsite was only a quarter mile down the trail from Skyline Drive and a half a mile from Skyland Lodge, which again, that goes back to it was a popular gathering place with a bar, restaurant, and cabins. So um, a lot of these stories that we've been telling, these aren't areas where they're 50 miles inland and somebody found them. They happen to be where there are population around. So you would think that, why have they gone cold this long? Like, why, where were the witnesses? But then you have to look at it as maybe that was the reason why. Because there are a lot of people mingling in, there's obviously some bad seeds in there. And it might even, it sometimes, you know, be more safe where you're 25 miles in because you're the only one truly out there. So um, that does tell a tale where they seem to be in areas with people around them. But um, unfortunately, these have still gone cold and there isn't much um, that have come out in a lot of these stories. So again, it was the weekend after Memorial Day. The lodge must have been jam-packed with hikers and tourists. And, you know, itching to get a jump start to the summer and get to the outdoors. Weather's nice, it's warm, school's out, you know, things of that nature. Um, so as they, you know, they, they, they came up on the bodies and unfortunately um, the bodies were, you know, there were stories of if they were sexually, uh, you, know, you know, there was, you know, sexual crimes done, but they did find them where their, their throats had been cut, uh, unfortunately, and they were unclothed uh, in their tents. Um, Shenandoah National Park is an exclusive federal jurisdiction, so that's when you start getting the feds, as we've told in some other stories, where some local authorities, park rangers, but then generally uh, the FBI actually gets involved. You know, um, one of the several factors that makes conducting investigations in national park sites challenging is, you know, the first factor is that so many people are coming and going from the park each day. It's also very vast. Um, that particular park, 1.57 million people visited the park in 1996. So that, that tells you something right there. And that was an estimate, but that tells you something right there that that kind of transient environment allows for perpetrators to easily slip through parks unnoticed, um, be waiting in the wings, mingle with crowds, be there if they were at the, they could have been being stalked as they were actually at one of those restaurants and, and having something to eat or have something to drink. So, um, it was unfortunate, and, and so that that's just the nature of, of being around these areas. But again, that could happen anywhere. That can happen in cities, suburbs. But um, unfortunately, it happened to these two, uh, two, two ladies here in 1996. So, it, you know, years go by, and the years that follow discovery of the woman's body, the National Park Service and the FBI joined forces to conduct a nationwide search for their killer, including follow-up on an estimated 15,000 leads. So essentially now you're putting in a whole team effort. For over a year, nothing happened until one day in July of 1997, over a year later, um, when the tranquility of the Shenandoah National Park was shattered once again, um, they started getting some leads. A, a suspect did emerge. Um, Shenandoah Skyline Drive is a popular place for bike riding as well. And in July 1997, Yvonne Mobasha, a tourist from Canada, had come to do uh, when she pedaled through the mountain road admiring the Blue Ridge Mountains, Malshaba was forced off the road and off her bike by a man driving a truck. Uh, he screamed sexual profanities at her, and he stepped away from the vehicle and raged and tried to even force her inside. Malbasha was, was able to fight him off and took cover behind a tree as the man re-entered in his truck and tried numerous times to run her over. He eventually gave up and sped away. Pretty crazy scenario, I know. 
Um, the Rangers did apprehend him, and he was, at, you know, as they he was attempting to leave the park. Um, they searched his vehicle and found hand and leg restraints hidden inside. So obviously, this is a really bad person who was preying on people and potentially have could have been the um, the attacker. Um, not much was known about this man, Daryl David Rice, at the time of Walsh's attack. Uh, at the time of Mulbosch's attack, he was in his late 20s and living in Columbia, Maryland, a single guy with no kids. So obviously a loner, most likely um, a deranged person. And anybody had shackles and handcuffs. I mean, this is somebody who's premeditating these types of crimes. But he had no previous criminal record. Um, and, you know, per the reports and states that, you know, it was, you know, that it was stated that Rice uh, was fired from his job in Maryland's MCI system house in June of 1997 because he was extremely hostile at work. Hence, you see the story of him trying to run over this poor woman from Canada. Um, it was reported that it was reported that Rice's former co-workers told investigators that he yelled sexual and other profanities at them, punched a hole in the wall in the men's bathroom, stole their lunches, bumped into them, so that they'd spill their coffee and took down one woman's picture and threw it in the trash, allegedly. And that's the reports that, you know, we did some research on. So uh, it came down to where in 1998, this gentleman, Daryl David Rice, played guilty of attempted abduction of Mobasha. I mean, he was sentenced to, at that time, he was sentenced to 135 months in Petersburg, Virginia Federal Penitentiary. Um, why is this important? Because then he started becoming a... Um, a person of interest um, with circumstantial evidence on hand on April 10th, 2001, nearly five years after their deaths, attorney general, John Ashcroft, if you remember that guy announced the indictment of Daryl David Rice in the murder of Jolie Williams and Lully Winnes. Um, in a news conference announcing Rice's indictment, prosecutors alleged that Rice had stated on several occasions that he enjoys assaulting women because they are in his words, quote, more vulnerable, more vulnerable, uh, close quote, than men. Um, additionally, prosecutors stated that Rice said that the women deserve to die because they were gay. Um, this guy just seems like a real scumbag. Uh, anyway, um, Rice was charged with four counts of capital murder, murder, two of which alleged he selected his victims because of their sexual orientation. Because Rice was charged with a hate crime, his indictment involved a federal sentencing enhancement. If convicted, Rice would receive the death penalty. Um, unfortunately, this gentleman was never sentenced. Uh, though prosecutors spent years building a case against Mr. Rice, they lacked forensic evidence. Then in 2003, a hair found at the crime scene was tested. DNA results indicated that it did not match Rice or the victims. After all, the case did fall apart at that point. Um, I mean, you don't have, you, you get DNA results. That doesn't mean DNA's always, results are always 100% accurate, but... This was an important piece. Whose hair was it? Um, it wasn't any of the victims, and it wasn't Mr. Rice's. So, in 2004, the charges against Daryl David Rice were dismissed without prejudice, meaning he could still be charged at a later date, which is a good thing because just because there's a hair there, I mean, they could have had somebody else in their tent, you know, hanging out. It could have been on a, a coat. It could have been brought to there from home. Um, and so... Because the murder of Jolie and Lolly was still an active investigation, the FBI will not discuss persons of interest. And that's the thing with these cases, as you start to see, and we've dug in and for months have tried to do a lot of research. There's not much out there because they're still open cases and they don't want to they don't want to really get too much information out as they want to go after leads. And that also, if they do go after people of interest or witnesses and bring them in to testify, they don't want certain information being uh, public knowledge prior to that. So those, those are reasons 
from what we've uncovered, why these the, the just there isn't much out there, even almost thirty years later uh, in this case particular. So uh, since then, no one has been convicted of the murders, and Rice was released from prison in 2011. The last reported sighting of Rice was in 2014 when police in Durango, Colorado, began receiving calls from frightened residents saying they'd see him in the area. Durango Police Chief Jim Spratlin said people were overreacting, adding, all I know is he's not wanted and we ain't looking for him. So obviously people figured out who this was and they were concerned, but I mean, being concerned in somebody who already did their time and is released, in some cases, unfortunately, it's not a crime and there's really nothing you can do. So... As we move forward, you know, um, we got to around the 20th anniversary of Jolie and Lolly's murders. The FBI circulated a press release and updated posters. The case does remain open and active investigation, said D. Rybisky of the FBI. It's our hope that any continued coverage of the girls' murders will one day generate that one critical piece of information they may bring someone to justice and peace for their families. And that's how we feel about this. Um, you know, that was the 20th year and... 2016 and they generally do that as cold cases go on they'll do it on like every five years or 10 years they'll get in the 20 25 year anniversaries 30 and they really try to put it out but you start to get you know unfortunately lose hope but a lot of these cold cases then suddenly just take a turn you know when you get into the 20 30 years and we've seen that over and over over the years with so many cold cases um so uh, as of this time you know the cases remain unsolved um, there are, you know, leads that are being followed up on, but the, the, the book's pretty much closed and the FBI isn't releasing much information. We will be doing, again, a follow-up on our YouTube channel, Saga Media, and we're going to be in studio discussing all of these unsolved mysteries and cold cases, really getting into a lot more detail. Anything else we found out since this is aired uh, on uh, in October 10th is when the re- this recording. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to really dive in and then we're going to do even another follow-up. So please uh, like our, our YouTube channel, follow us uh, on, on Apple uh, Podcasts, and on Spotify, and um, you know, like, subscribe, and, and we'll have more to come. Uh, appreciate you all listening. Again, Jeremy Bruce of Saga Media, and uh, we'll see you next time. Have a great night.